Leviticus 12. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification thirty-three days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purification are fulfilled. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity. And she shall continue in the blood of her purification sixty-six days. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering, to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has borne a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her, and she will be clean. Let's pray. O Heavenly Father God, great Lord of all, creator of heaven and earth, one that has given life to to every man and woman and child here. Father, we do praise you that you have us in this place, in this text. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to understand things rightly, even as you, you have chosen this method to bring people into the earth to fill the earth. Father, we do pray that you would give Mr. Horn much wisdom, that you would cause him to to proclaim boldly that which the congregation here needs to hear. Father, we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would you would help us to hear by your spirit, to be instructed, to be taught. Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand these things rightly. The the way that you've ordered these things in the earth. Father, the, uh, the atonement, the cleansing, the impurity. Father, help us to, to understand these things and how, how they are relevant to our lives now. How you would have us to walk in greater obedience. How you would have us to, to walk and be changed by these things. How you would, you would help us to be blessed and encouraged and, and challenged by by your word, Father, we do pray that you would bless us and instruct us now that we may glorify and honor you. Father, we pray that you would, you would bless our time now. In Jesus' name. So as we come to this next passage about what makes you unclean, right? we've, we've just come from Leviticus 11 where it was all these animals are unclean because they don't chew the cud, because they don't have a cloven hoof, because they don't have a fin, because they don't have scales, or they're unclean because 
They creep along their bellies on the earth. God gave these pictures of the nature of being clean versus the nature of being unclean. That the clean have certain characteristics. But now we come to a passage about being unclean because of what happens. It's because of the events. When a mother has a child, she becomes unclean. And that uncleanness isn't just you wash and then wash your clothes and wash your body and then you're unclean until evening. This is uncleanness, right? That's the uncleanness that you get from touching an unclean animal, the carcass of an unclean animal. This is uncleanness that lasts for 40 days or lasts for 80 days. For a male child, it's 40 days. And for a female child, it's 80 days. But even though that's about the gender of the child, I think it's less to do with the gender of the child and more to do with the circumcision. That the boy gets circumcised and the girl does not. And that that is the difference between the 40 days and the 80 days. Because I think it's the shedding of blood in circumcision that is what is reducing the days of purification. Which means to understand that, we should go back to circumcision and understand circumcision, which is one of the reasons that I wanted Chris to read from Genesis 17. Because he read it from the New King James, but I'm going to read it from the King James. And the reason I'm going to read it from the King James, not all of what he read. But the New King James made a different translation choice that causes some of the meaning of the passage to be discarded. Some of the meaning that's pretty serious when you get to the New Testament. And the New Testament uses the word seed. The, King James, the New King James translates that as descendants, which is a valid translation. But it loses the richness of the Hebrew word, which is, is seed. And so circumcision is directly connected to seed. Physically, it's connected to the omission of seed. And so you cannot separate circumcision from seed. And by using the word descendants rather than seed, it separates that. So I don't usually quote from the King James, but I want to read Genesis 17, 4 through 8 in the King James. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceedingly, exceeding fruitful. And I will make nations of these, and kings shall come out of these, thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So just as in English, seed is an odd word because it's a singular collective. In other words, the word can be seed, which means one seed, but seed is also a singular word that means a collection of seed. Now, there's other things like we can think of deer and deer, where the same word is the singular and the plural, but there's actually a plural for seed, right? Seeds is a word. I have ten different kinds of seeds. That is a proper English. And so, this is a singular collective, which is different than like deer, you know, like the animal in the field. 
It's different than that. And so that one word that most means both the singular and the group. And of course, that is the gospel, right? Jesus Christ is the one person who died, but He died. He was the seed of Abraham, but the seed of Abraham is all those who have, through the works of Abraham, all those who have Abraham as their father. It is the body of Christ. The body of Christ is many and it's one. It's a singular collective and it's a singular noun. And so that's why in Genesis 17, when you're talking about circumcision especially, you need to be thinking of it in terms of seed, which is, I mean, it's castration of the foreskin. Or not castration, but circumcision of the foreskin. And so it's directly related to seed. So that nature is really important, and Paul even uses that, right? In the argument of, in Galatians, he uses it as a singular, and then in Romans, he uses it saying that's a plural. And so that idea of it being both the, the children, or the, all the children that are true sons of Abraham, which have the faith of Abraham, and Jesus Christ, it's referring to both of those with one word. So the promise of the covenant is that in Abraham's seed, in Christ, and in the people of God, there will become many nations of the earth. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will worship God eternally in heaven. And all those are spiritual sons of Abraham through Christ who is his seed. And so the picture of circumcision is the picture that the Messiah will come through Abraham's seed. And so he gives the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17, 10 through 12. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every male man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger, which is not of thy seed. So Abraham gave the sign, excuse me, God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, of cutting the foreskin, which is where a man's seed comes forth as a sign that the Messiah will come from the offspring of Abraham. Because of the faith of Abraham, God says, because he will train up his children after him. That's why he says that his child, that the Messiah will come from him. And so he's circumcised, his children are circumcised, even his whole household is circumcised. Because even though the Messiah will not come through them, circumcision is also a picture of the constraint on sin, of reduction of sin. Like it says in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So he continues and says it will not be all of the children of Abraham. Ishmael will not live before him in Genesis 17:21. He says, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. And so he's right away saying, I have, you have seed, but it's not all of the seed. It's not all of the physical seed. It's one subset of the physical seed. The one that will be from the Messiah, who is the seed. So in this passage, 
where Moses has commanded that the sons be circumcised on the eighth day, God is not contradicting what they were already supposed to be doing. That was commanded in Genesis 17. They're descendants of Abraham, so they were supposed to be circumcising on the seventh day, or on the eighth day. But he's giving a a greater picture, a, a fuller picture of the efficacy of that circumcision, what it's supposed to be doing. Because of the length of time that a woman stays unclean is based on whether the child is circumcised. If the child is circumcised, she's unclean for 40 days. If the child is not circumcised, if she's a girl instead of a boy, so girls aren't circumcised, there's no seed involved, so therefore she's unclean for 40 days. So I think it has less to do with the gender of the child than the fact that boys get circumcised. Because it's the shedding of blood that causes the remission of sin. It's the shedding of blood that's required to make the unclean clean. And so when that, that baby boy is, has his foreskin cut, he sheds blood, and so his mother's length of impurity changes. So with that introduction, let's, let's go to the verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a woman has conceived and born a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days, as in the days of her customary impurity, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. She shall then continue in the blood of her purification 33 days. She shall not touch any hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days for purification are fulfilled. So then the Lord spoke to Moses. Notice before that in Leviticus 10, he was speaking specifically to Aaron, saying, you're supposed to determine who's clean and unclean, who's holy and who's unholy. And you're supposed to teach it to the children of Israel. And then in Leviticus 11, when he talks about all the unclean animals, he speaks to both Aaron and Moses and says basically that both are supposed to be saying, don't eat unclean things. But now he just speaks to Moses. So we have to think about what's happening with Moses to understand why I think that Moses is the only one that's spoken to here. Until Aaron's appointed high priest... Moses is both the head of the government, he's basically the king, and he's also the priest. He's taking on a Christ-like role, which is why he says, you know, there has to be a prophet that comes after me that's like me, and him you have to hear, because Christ is both king and priest. But after Aaron is consecrated as high priest, Moses' role now shifts, and he's primarily the, the chief magistrate. He's still clearly a prophet. But he's not the one that's doing the mediation, not like he was doing the mediation before, before Aaron was made the high priest. Now Aaron does the sacrifices and not Moses. And so the rule, so when he's speaking to, when God speaks to Moses, he's actually speaking to the chief civil magistrate. And so when we think about this, he's telling the chief civil magistrate that women have to separate themselves for seven days or 14 days, and they have to be not go into the temple for 33 days or 66 days. 
and I think he's saying this is supposed to be enforced by the civil magistrate, that this is worthy of using the sword because the sword wasn't given to Aaron. The sword wasn't given to Aaron any more than the sword has been given to the church. The word has been given to Aaron. He's supposed to teach. And so God is saying this is serious enough that the civil magistrate is to be involved. Just like the civil magistrate is to be involved, the priest is supposed to be teaching, this is an unclean animal. It doesn't, have, it doesn't chew the cud. It's supposed to be showing and declaring what makes something clean and unclean. But Moses is also told because he's supposed to make sure they don't eat unclean things as the civil magistrate. So I think here, he's just speaking to Moses because he's saying, Moses, the government has the responsibility to enforce this. Now, obviously, this changes with the destruction of Israel. But we should also recognize that, that the government really does have responsibilities, of a, not of a teaching nature, but of a spiritual nature. So speak to the children of Israel. So Moses was to instruct Israel. It's not like once that Aaron spoke that God's role of, de- excuse me, Moses' role of declaring God's commandments to the people disappeared. He still is the primary instructor of the people in the things of the law. Even if he doesn't have the appointed role of the priest, he still does the declaration of the laws and then the, the priests are supposed to teach what does this mean. What does this mean in being holy? What does this mean in being clean? Then it says, if a woman is conceived. And again, this keeps tying back to seed, so it's important to tie it back to seed. That woman, if a woman is conceived, that's basically if she has had seed sown is what the word comes from. It's about the sowing of seed. And so this is still tying back to the seed that ties back to Abraham. So if the woman has had seed sown in her, that produced fruit and she bore a male child. And so when she bears a male child, or when she bears a child, regardless of whether it's male or female, she becomes unclean. And this was considered true for miscarriages as well because there was an issue of blood and because there was an issue of blood that made her unclean, whether the, the baby was born living or not. And so it still took days of purification. And so while it's not explicit, I think that was, that was the, the Jewish interpretation, and I think that's probably true, is that, that they still had to go through the purification process because it was the shedding of blood, just like in a miscarriage or in the giving of birth. So she becomes unclean, but there's a difference if it's a male child. If it's a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days. She doesn't really stop being unclean after those seven days. It's just the nature of her uncleanness changes. It's really important to understand this, that there are different kinds of uncleanness. There were uncleannesses in the last chapter where some uncleanness, you were just unclean till evening, you didn't have to do anything. Which is just a picture of we get defiled by the world and... There's nothing you can do about it. It's not your sin. It's the picture of Christ could walk through the world and things happen to him. And it wasn't his sin. And then there's, there's uncleanness where you have to wash and bathe your clothes. 
Well, that's a different kind of uncleanness. That's an uncleanness. It's a picture that requires repentance. It requires you to do something about the uncleanness. And then there's this uncleanness, which ends, in the case of a male child, it ends with the son's circumcision. And so I think this is a picture of of that blood being shed so that the this unclean woman can become clean in a sense, but not perfectly clean because she still can't enter into the holy place. She still can't enter into the presence of God until the 40 days is complete. So there's that uncleanness. And then there's the uncleanness where that you, she's still unclean those last 33 days, but she's not unclean in the fact that she has to separate from her husband, that she can't live at home. She can continue to live at home, but she can't go into the courtyard of the tabernacle. And so it's important when we think of uncleanness, not just go, oh, they're unclean or they're not unclean. No, there's a lot more levels of uncleanness than there is of whether you're just clean or unclean. There's clean and then all kinds of levels of uncleanness. So in the first seven days, she's unclean as in the days for customary impurity. Now, it's interesting to note, he hasn't declared what this uncleanness looks like yet. But yet he says... And he tells Moses to teach the children of Israel, this is uncleanness like the customary impurity. But they clearly had some understanding before that of the uncleanness during menstruation. For instance, in Genesis 31, 34, and 35, now Rachel had taken the household idols, but put them on the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, because the manner of women is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Her father assumes that she would not be sitting on the household idols if she was in the midst of her customary impurity. They already had this idea that that was defiling, that that was a picture of defilement. If the manner of women was upon her but it doesn't get codified in the law until chapter 15. And then we see the rules are different for the person, for the woman who's unclean during her her monthly cycle, that they're different than the uncleanness if a dead animal hits you. Leviticus 15, 19 through 23. If a woman has a discharge and the discharge from her body is blood, she shall be set apart seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until evening. Everything that she lies on during her impurity shall be unclean. Also, everything that she sits on shall be unclean. Whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And whoever touches anything that she sat on shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. If anything is on her bed or anything in which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until evening. So these same rules that apply during the monthly cycle, those same rules apply when you give birth. That for the first seven days, after she gives birth to a son, she's to be set apart. She's to be separated from society. Any contact with her makes you unclean. Everything she touches is unclean. If she, sits, if she sat on something and you sit on it, you become unclean and have to wash her clothes. You touch her bed, you become unclean. And it's an uncleanness that 
you've joined in her impurity, so you actually have to wash your clothes. You have to have this picture of repentance and be unclean until evening. So all these rules apply during the first seven days after childbirth. She shall be unclean, and not just generally unclean, but unclean as it does during menstruation. But at the end of her period, she was then to take birds to the priests and their blood would be shed. But that's not what happened in childbirth. In childbirth, on the eighth day, at the end of the week of impurity, where she had to be separated, she had to be separated from everyone else, instead of the birds being sacrificed, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. The son was circumcised. So again, God uses the same thing for multiple pictures. Being circumcised on the eighth day, in one sense, is a picture of of glorification, where at the end of time, corruption will put on incorruption, everyone will be circumcised. And all the remaining sin will be removed. That's why when they enter into the promised land, they all get circumcised. Because it's a picture of sin being constrained. But this is also related to the seed. Being circumcised in the male is the picture that Christ will come from the seed of Abraham through Mary. So the son's circumcision has a cleansing effect on his mother. His shedding of blood causes the mother's impurity to end. And that's tying to the messianic promise. That it's through the seed of Abraham, through Christ that our impurities are removed. So the picture is not that this son removes her impurities, but that's the promise of how impurities get removed. They get removed through the shedding of the blood of the son. So I think that's why for a son, she has half the time of impurity that she does for a daughter. But we'll get more to that. So this is the picture that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So then she then, she shall then continue, but again, she's not perfectly clean. There's just one level of cleanliness that she has taken. She no longer needs to be separated. She shall then continue in her blood of purification. So the rules are not like the rules during her monthly period. She still needs to be purified even after the circumcision of the son for 33 days, which again makes a total of 40 days, right? Eight days on the, excuse me, seven days. She's just like the seven days for her cycle. She's impure. She has to be separated on the eighth day. She can now come back to be with people. But on that eighth day, when she comes back to be with people, 33 days starts for a total of 40 days. In 40 days, we all know 40 days is a picture of judgment in the Bible. And so it's a picture of being judged for 40 days. And it's important to recognize that judgment has two meanings, right? There's, there's, it can mean punishment or it can mean being considered, being judged. You know, 40 days of punishment, like during Noah's flood, where it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But it's also this picture of being judged where you determine guilt or innocence. Like Moses, when he was at the top of Mount Sinai, he was there for 40 days where he was being judged and Aaron was being judged as, they, as he goes and makes the golden calf. 
The one was judged to be faithful and the other was judged to be faithless. Or Christ being in the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 days. So after giving the birth to the to a son, she still has a total of 40 days of uncleanness before she becomes clean. And so I think this is a picture of the gospel. Right? You, you become unclean, and then at some point in time, through the, through the blood that was shed by Christ, if you're saved, you become clean, but not perfectly clean. And then you go through this time of judgment, like the passage that we read, or the passage, the, the, the section that we read from the Second London Baptist Confession about that you're not perfectly clean until glorification. I think that's the picture. There's still judgment. There's still re- you still receive the punishment for sin. But then after 40 days, after this complete period of judgment, it ends. And so Christians have a different uncleanness before they receive Christ than after they receive Christ. And there is a shift in uncleanness. We're still, you know, John says, if you say you are without sin, the truth does not abide in you. We're still all unclean, even as Christians. But our uncleanness is different than the uncleanness before we were saved, before we received the blood of Jesus Christ. So after you receive the blood of Jesus Christ, you're still being judged, but not punished like a civil magistrate. Those who are saved, God is punishing them like a a son that he delights in, that he cares about, that he loves. Even after Christ has shed his blood for us, it doesn't mean that we become perfectly clean. It means that, yes, we become somewhat cleaner, but we still need to be cleansed. We're still being judged by God. We're still incurring the anger of God because we still sin against him. But he uses it to train us and to make us holy. Which is why it then says, she shall not touch any hallowed thing. Well, the hallowed things, the things in the tabernacle, they're pictures of heaven. And so that 40 days, that remaining 33 days, she's not allowed to touch any of those things. Because she's not prepared to touch hallowed things yet. That's after glorification that we can go into the presence of God. We can't go into the presence of God now or we would surely die. But when Christ comes and corruption puts on incorruption, then we can touch hallowed things. We can go into hallowed places. We can go to heaven. It says, nor come into the sanctuary. She's still not prepared to enter into the sanctuary. That word sanctuary is, is not referring to the holy place. Because women were never prepared, were never permitted to go into the holy place. But it has been used twice before in the Bible. In Exodus 15.17 and in Exodus 25.8. Exodus 15.17 says, You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. In the place, O Lord, where you have made for your own dwelling the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And Exodus 25.8 says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And so that word sanctuary is the picture of dwelling with God. And so she's still not prepared to dwell with God. She's not allowed to go into the sanctuary, which I think the Jews, the Israelites, rightly interpreted this to mean that they weren't allowed to go into the courtyard of the tabernacle 
But God is using a different term than he was using for the courtyard. He's using the term of the place where he dwells. So they're not allowed to go dwell with God yet. That doesn't happen. Again, you look at, you look at it, the, the process of salvation that we're justified, we're sanctified, and we're glorified. The time before, or the circumcision is the picture of justification. The 33 days afterwards, I think, is the picture of sanctification. And then you have glorification where she's able to enter into the sanctuary. So the point of both those passages is that this is the place where God dwells. And the woman, in that other 33 days of purification, she's not able to go into the presence of God yet. But she's being sanctified. She's being cleansed for that day where she will be able to. Until the days of her purification. And again, that word purification is used only twice, only two other places in Scripture other than in this passage. And it means like clearness or clarity. For instance, in Exodus 24.10, where Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai and they saw God. It says, and they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like it's very heaven, heavens in its clarity. That word clarity is the word here that's used purification. It's this picture of of having all the sin removed, having everything. It's a picture of full sanctification. I think it's a picture of glorification. When she becomes clear of her sin, until that happens, she cannot touch heavenly things. She cannot enter into the picture of heaven until all the days are fulfilled. The justification is the picture of the boy getting circumcised. The 33 days is the picture of sanctification. The remainder of the period after the shedding of blood. And then brightness or clarity. The picture of glorification. The picture to be the ability to be in the presence of God and to dwell with them. So when a woman has a male child, God uses it as a picture of the full aspect of salvation justification, sanctification, and glorification. Then verse 5. But if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her customary impurity, and she shall continue in the blood of her purification 66 days. But if if she bears a female child... So it's not true of a female child. God doesn't draw the same picture with the female child that he does with the male child because the female child doesn't shed blood. So there's no shedding of blood for the remission of the mother's sin. It's not because girls are less valuable than boys. They're both made in the image of God. But because God is drawing two different pictures with them. For boys, it's a picture of salvation because Christ was a man that shed his blood. And for girls, it's a picture of remaining in unbelief. So then she shall be clean. Giving birth is still the issue of blood. It still makes her unclean. But when she gives birth to a girl, the girl isn't circumcised. So she's not a bearer of the picture of the Messiah that will come through the seed of Abraham. She doesn't shed blood for her mother. And so her mother's impurity lasts longer. It lasts for two weeks. But why would it end at all? 
I think, I think there's an important point here because it's really easy for us to think that, that there are lots of people who think they're saved just because they got tired of their sin. That they think they're saved because they just, the burden of sin got to be to the point where, where they stopped doing it. They weren't cleansed by the blood of Christ. They were cleansed because they didn't like the punishment for sin anymore. I think that, that this idea that there is sanctification that comes because of bearing the weight of sin to most people is here. It doesn't come like it does with Christ. It doesn't come with that, with that sanctification, but it still comes. And for two weeks, she's to separate herself. Anybody that touches what she sat or what she laid on needs to be washed and be cleansed until e- unclean until evening. And so all the rules that apply during the menstrual cycle, they apply during this two weeks as well. And God has to limit it somehow, right? Because if he just made it that it went on forever, you'd have one child and then all of a sudden everybody's dispersed and, and humanity would die out. That's what would happen. Humanity would die out. The average, the average number of children every woman has to have has to be at least two or you die out. And so if every time that a woman had a child that she stayed in that impurity forever. So there's a practical consideration. But I also think that God is giving the picture that there's sanctification that happens from the world. How many people are as wild in their 40s as they are in their 20s? Not many continue. There is real pressure that happens because of sin in the world and because God ordered the world for there to be consequences of sin. That natural sanctification that's without a change of heart, that's without, without the shedding of blood, without that remission of sin. But they shed their own blood long enough through the wrath of God, through the consequences of sin that they go, we're just going to stop. And they can look holy, but it doesn't mean that Christ's blood was shed for them. They just don't have the vigor of youth anymore. They don't have the foolishness of youth anymore. The cost of sin becomes too high, and they don't want to bear it anymore. That's very typical in life. You can see that about very wicked people is that frequently their wickedness starts to fade, not because they want to, their wickedness to fade, but they just don't have the vigor to maintain it, and they don't want the consequences of it anymore. But she shall continue. She, again, continues to be unclean after those two weeks. She's allowed to join back into society. But she still can't, obviously, go into a holy place. But yet, but yet she can. Her, her level of uncleanness has changed. So in the blood of her purification, she's still not clear. She's still not clear of the, the shedding of blood. And she's not pure for 66 days, which makes a total of 80 days, which is important to recognize because judgment is pictured by 40 days. So all of a sudden, the woman that has a, a child who does not shed blood for her, she gets double judged, right? This is the picture of of salvation is you have justification with the circumcision of the son, you have the 33 days of sanctification, and then you have glorification. For the other one, she has 14 days of suffering in her sin, and then there's a sense that she's sanctified. 
that are sins constrained. But then she goes in for another round of judgment. She gets double judged. That's the picture of hell. Hell is the judgment of God. Those who are saved, those who receive the, the, the seed of Abraham, they don't get the second judgment. But she gets the second judgment. So I think the difference between the boys and the girls is the, is the picture of salvation on one hand and on unbelief and the effects of unbelief on the other hand that after your life is over, after you've been judged for your sin in this world, because there are real consequences to sin in this world, that those who haven't received the blood of Jesus Christ, they then and go get judged again. And so I think that's why girls have twice the judgment. Twice, because it's not just testing, it's also wrath and the pouring out of wrath. And I think that's what the other 40 days is a picture of they go to another judgment, the eternal judgment of the wrath of God. So verses 6 through 8. When the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or for a daughter, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering, and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her. And she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who is born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So when the days of her purification are fulfilled... So there's this one picture in the the shedding of blood, this one picture of either salvation or not salvation. But then I think God is changing here and shifting the pictures that he's making. Because this picture is whether for a son or a daughter, so it doesn't connect directly to the previous picture. So God is using the same thing to, to have two different pictures, which isn't unusual. He does that a lot. But when, they, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, just like when her days of purification are fulfilled, when she starts her monthly cycle, that she has to go for seven days and separate herself, and then at the end of the seven days, on the eighth day, she has to go and make an offering. The same is true here. So when her days of purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or a daughter, but again, that's later, so this is being introduced here, because it is about purification from giving birth. And so again, it's a different picture because it's for a son or a daughter. The first picture was given, which was very much saying this is a different picture for a son and a daughter. Now this is saying this is all the same picture. So it has to be a different picture. So she shall bring to the priest, when she has a child, then she has to make an offering at the temple in order to actually finalize her, her, her cleaning, her being purified, her being clear. So just, she had a flow of blood, other blood um, in the circumcision of the son, or just waiting in the case of the daughter. But even after those 40 or 80 days, she's not clean until there's shedding of blood. 
because it's the shedding of blood that causes the remission of sin. And so she'll bring to the priest a lamb of the first year. Obviously, a, that's a picture of Christ, the lamb of God. And she shall bring him, bring that lamb as a burnt offering. A burnt offering, again, as we've been talking about since Leviticus 1, a burnt offering is a picture of substitutionary atonement. That she becomes clean because the lamb takes her judgment. That the lamb receives the wrath that is due her. Her sin needs to be atoned for, even though, remember, there's no sin in having children, but the shedding of blood... That, that comes with having children, that is a picture. That's a, a term used throughout Scripture that you know the shedding of innocent blood is a term for sin. And so when she sheds blood, it's a picture of her being in sin, even though there wasn't sin there. These are pictures. These aren't reality. It's not saying that it's, it's sinful to get pregnant. It's not sinful to have a baby. That's not what God is saying here. But he's saying that the shedding of blood is a picture of sin And so she needs to be cleansed from that shedding of blood. And the way she gets cleansed by that shedding of blood is through other blood being shed. The shedding of blood requires the atonement through blood. And again, it's not just for birth. It's every every month that she has to go and offer two birds, according to Leviticus 15, because that shedding of blood requires the shedding of blood. So there's this repeated reminder that blood had to be shed for the shedding of blood. So she had to bring a young lamb of the first year and a young pigeon or a turtle dove. So more than a burnt offering was needed. A bird was needed, and that bird, of course, is the least expensive of the live offerings that you could give because even the poorest could set up a net and trap a bird. So even the poorest could afford to offer a bird. And that was as a sin offering. And the sin offering is a picture of justification. The shedding of blood is required for God's wrath not to be upon you, but for you to be reconciled with God. Other blood had to be shed, both of which are fulfilled in Christ. But that woman with her shedding of blood through birth or her customary impurity required something else's blood to be shed for reconciliation to take place. That's the picture of the gospel. So she had to bring that, that lamb and that young turtle dove, or that young pigeon or turtle dove to the door of the tabernacle meeting. So at this point, she's still not clean because, because she hasn't made these offerings, but yet she is allowed to go into the hallowed place. She is allowed to go into the sanctuary. And so she could bring it to the door of the tabernacle meeting, which is between the altar burnt offering and the tabernacle. And so for the first 40 or 80 days, she couldn't go in there, but at the end of the time, she could bring sacrifices that allow her to approach God because Christ's sacrifice allows us to approach God. He is the way to the Father. Then he shall offer it before the Lord. So she takes it, brings it to the priest at at the door of the tabernacle meeting, and then the priest offers it according to the commandments that were given in Leviticus chapter 1. The lamb would have been burned on the altar. It would have been slayed. It would have been butchered. The fat would have been separated. It would have been piled on, and then it would have been cut and butchered and put in pieces, and the whole thing would have been burned up. And that would make atonement for her. The picture of the substitution that's required for her to be reconciled to God. Because the shedding of her blood was not enough to reconcile her to God. And then she shall be clean. 
not just the time that makes her clean. It's the actual shedding of blood of another that makes her clean. She's not allowed to shed that blood until a certain time passes, but that time doesn't make her clean. It's the shedding of blood that makes her clean. From the flow of her blood, from the defilement, from her flow of blood. So this is the law for who is born a male or a female. Regardless of the sex of the child, she needs to be cleansed for the picture of shedding blood. And if she is not able, a lamb would have been a significant expense for the poor. So God makes provision for that. To bring a lamb. If she does not have a lamb or can't afford to buy a lamb, then she's allowed to just bring birds. Remember, this includes Mary. It's important to recognize that from Luke 2, 22 through 24. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens a womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So she brings these birds, but you're also allowed to bring a lamb and a bird. You know, obviously, and this is obvious from other places in Scripture, where we have these pictures of, of the, the baby in the manger and the, the three wise men standing around them is a total lie. If they had just brought her gold, it is a sin for Mary to offer two birds. If she has gold, that she can buy a lamb. And it's obvious that Herod kills the children under two, but... But these pictures all of a sudden get really twisted when you start to go, oh yeah, the, the wise men were there when Jesus was a baby, when he was first born. No, it was clearly after he was more than 40 days old, or she would have brought a lamb. But she brought two turtle doves. Because that is the sign of being poor. Mary, Jesus Christ, was not, was not born of somebody who was born in wealth. He was born in somebody who was poor and could only afford two birds. Because if you could afford a lamb and a bird, you were supposed to bring a lamb and a bird. And she was faithful. She would have brought a lamb and a bird. But instead, she brings two birds. So if you can't afford that, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. You can bring birds. The picture has to be fulfilled either way. One has to be a burnt offering. One has to be a picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ suffering the punishment of the wrath of God, which is represented by the altar burnt offering, rather than us suffering his wrath. And the other is a sin offering. The other is a picture of salvation, of having sins forgiven. And it's interesting that either way, if she has the resources, she offers a lamb rather than a bird for the burn offering. But either way, she's to always offer a bird for a sin offering. And one of the reasons that's interesting is because when, when the sin offering is codified in the law, in Leviticus 4, it doesn't say that you can offer a bird for a sin offering. It says you can offer a bullock if you're a if you're a priest, you can, if you've been anointed, you can offer a bullock. If you're, if you're offering for the congregation, you can offer a lamb. If you're, if you're a ruler or if you're a common person, and it has no law about offering a sin offering of a bird. But then he turns around in chapter 12 and says, offer a sin offering of a bird. 
so we've said this a bunch of times, but obviously it meant that he's giving case law here. They're supposed to be able to figure out from what was said about a bullock, from what was said about a, a lamb, what was said about how they were to sacrifice a burnt offering in, in Leviticus 1, about how they were to offer birds as a sin offering, that they're, or excuse me, as a burnt offering, that they're to tie all this together and go, okay, this is how God wants us to offer a sin offering of a bird, because he doesn't tell them. They're supposed to be able to figure it out. So that's really important that when we look at the law of God, we consider that and we think about that. God doesn't tell us every law. He expects us to reason out what the law should be. And he's given us enough information to correctly reason it out. That's 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. Is that he's given us everything we need to be perfectly holy and perfectly righteous. He's given us all the knowledge that we need. It's our sin nature that prevents it. It's not that God hasn't given enough revelation. They're supposed to be able to figure out this is, this is how to do a sin offering of a bird. So the priest shall make atonement for her. It requires intervention of the priest for salvation. And it's, it's important that we recognize this. As the priesthood of believers... That, that there's a real role, there's a real responsibility that we have to make people clean. We can't die for them. We can't cleanse them. But we still have a real responsibility to facilitate that they see the way, that they know the way, that they can, they can walk in the way. That's what priests are supposed to do, facilitate the shedding of blood for the person. We don't shed the blood, but we declare the gospel. We preach the gospel so that people can know how to be clean. That's how we make atonement for people, is by speaking truth, by declaring the truth of God's word, by declaring what's needed to be reconciled to the Father. And she will be clean. Then she will be made clean and be physically restored to society, be physically able to go back into the the courtyard of the sanctuary. It's a picture of being spiritually restored to the people of God. So let me give you some applications first one is we should recognize that there's different kinds of uncleanness there's uncleanness it's a picture of needing salvation needing justification and then there's a picture of uncleanness that separates you from the holy things for a while that doesn't mean that you're necessarily unregenerate right i mean that's second thessalonians three where the busybody is supposed to be barred from the table but you still treat him like a brother there's uncleanness that requires repentance. You have to wash your clothes. And then there's uncleanness that, that you just pick up by living in the world, that you're affected by it. Breaking any part of the law makes you guilty of the whole law. But that doesn't mean that breaking some parts of the law don't require much more to be cleansed from it than other parts of the law. People have taken that and twisted that and said, oh, sin doesn't matter. The nature of sin doesn't matter. But it does. There are sins that are, that are based on hating your neighbor. That if God has opened up your heart to have understanding, if he's written the law in your heart, you're not going to go murder your neighbor. It's not going to happen. No murderer will inherit the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that, that you might not accidentally go over the speed limit. 
that's still rebellion against the civil magistrate, but that doesn't mean that, that you can't be saved. And so we need to recognize that God judges sin differently. And it doesn't mean that even going over the speed limit doesn't require the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to be reconciled to the Father. It absolutely does. But there are sins of uncleanness that we're just supposed to repent of. And then there are sins of uncleanness that go, you're not saved. And we're supposed to recognize there's different kinds of uncleanness. And God is putting this in the Old Testament so that we recognize there's different kinds of uncleanness. Because it's too often that that Christians go, oh, we're all sinners. And go, no, there's different categories of sin. Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, and he does that in his people. Do not be deceived. Those who practice righteousness are righteous. There are different, but that doesn't mean they're perfectly clean. It doesn't mean that they're without sin. There's different kinds of uncleanness. Another application, having received the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin doesn't mean that God stops judging our sin. He still judges our sin. We're still not fit for heaven. We're still not able to, like the woman who has, whose son was circumcised and reduced her time of uncleanness, her time of separation. It doesn't mean that she could go into the holy place. We're still not prepared for heaven, and God is still judging our sins. He's still punishing us for our sins. And understand that God judges us for our sins in this life to prepare us for eternity. So that we aren't judged in eternity. That corruption puts on incorruption that we're perfect in eternity. And there is no judgment in eternity. But right now we're still not fit to ascend the hill of the Lord. It's only possible when Christ returns and when corruption puts on incorruption. When all our remaining corruption is removed. Another application, it's really important for us to consider how serious the imposition was on people to deal with, with being clean. You know, these laws about uncleanness, it's easy for us to kind of read them in abstract, but think about it. Every, every, there's all these things that make you unclean that mean that you have to bathe and that you're unclean until evening. There's all these things that, that women every, every month that they weren't pregnant, they had to go and they had to offer two birds for an offering. Every month. God doesn't go dealing with sin has no imposition. God's going, your whole culture will be structured around dealing with sin. That's what he did to Israel. Yeah, you know, I've been to a number of Roman ru- ruins. And one thing that you see in all the Roman ruins are they have baths everywhere. And it's easy for us to think that's about Rome. But the estimates are that one out of four to one out of 20 Romans were Jews. Why do you think they had baths everywhere? They constantly had to be bathing. They constantly had to be bathing. I think this was probably adopted from the Jewish customs to the Roman society. That makes a lot more sense. Because all these other people didn't bathe. But then, all of a sudden, all, even you go to England, on the border of England, you go to this, like, the furthest outpost from Rome, 
and they have baths, hot water baths, in you know, 120 AD or something like that. And the reason I bring that point up is think about how much it drove all of society so that it probably even affected the Gentiles. Because the Jews couldn't live, live there unless they had all these places to bathe. If you were in a city and you didn't have a place to bathe, you couldn't live there because you'd get unclean all the time. And we're going to go on and we're going to see that they had to bathe their beds and they had to bathe their couches. I mean, it's... God made it so that we are supposed to make really serious effort to deal with sin. And I think too often the church just kind of goes, oh yeah, we're here to worship Christ. We're here to praise God. And not recognize that a lot of praising God is dealing with sin. Turning from sin, walking in holiness. That's how we praise God. That's how people see Christ in us is dealing with sin. And we shouldn't just go, oh yeah, we'll just, we'll just do a quick repentance and then we'll get on with our life. That's not the picture that God gave us in Leviticus. He gave us this picture that you go out and you have to be separated. Think of the imposition. A mother has a, a, a daughter. She may have ten other children. But she has to leave and go out of the house and separate herself. They would have huts for the menstruating women. That she would have to go out with the baby to that hut for two weeks. Or that other place that's separated from the community. And her husband would have to deal with making sure her ten children got fed. Or they'd have to get a mother involved or something because... This, like, disrupted all of society. We're supposed to see that and recognize that our lives are supposed to be about dealing with sin. And not just going, oh, well, that's too hard. We'll just go on and go back to our comfort. We'll just go back to watching our television show. Or we'll just go back to, to reading this thing. Or we'll go back to surfing the web. Or we'll, whatever it is. A big portion of their life was focused on dealing with not the effects of real sin, mind you, right? They're just dealing with the effects of the picture of sin, not of actual sin. There's no sin in the mother having a baby. So how much more should we be serious and how much more should we dedicate our efforts? How much more should we be willing to work to deal with actual sin when this is what God was commanding them to do to deal with just the picture of sin? It is supposed to be a burden on our society. It is supposed to be a burden on our church to deal with sin. This is how life is supposed to be. This is how God pictured it. This is the the picture that he gave us in Israel. This is what church life is supposed to be like. It's about dealing with sin. In the picture of childbirth related to being cleansed from sin for women, it continues into the New Testament, and it's worth mentioning. In 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15, And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So after Paul says, women aren't to teach or have authority over a man, he then says, that's because that's not their ministry. Here's their ministry. They'll be saved in childbearing. 
And that doesn't mean they won't be saved if they don't bear children. But he's saying men have been given this role of teaching the society. They've been given this role of having authority. And women have been given the role to raise their children. And that for most women, like for a child, what's the sign of salvation? The most clearest sign of salvation in a child is not being baptized, not making a profession of faith. The clearest sign of a child being saved is they honor their father and mother. Right? It's Ephesians 6. Honor your father and mother in the Lord. If you obey your father and mother, that's the... If they won't obey their father and mother, don't baptize them. Because that's a sign that they're not saved. The sign of a man being saved is that he's supposed to go spread holiness through the world. And the sign of a woman being saved is she's supposed to raise her children to be holy. Right? This isn't saying that, that a woman that doesn't have children... That, no, that's not saying that, but it's saying the most obvious things. The orphan doesn't need to obey his father and mother and the Lord. But the most obvious picture of salvation for a woman is that her children follow in faith, love, holiness, self-control, that she has taught them these things. That's a testimony to her faith. So childbirth, God gave childbirth to women as their ministry because it is a picture of the gospel back in the, the shedding of blood and all that. But it's also the greatest ministry that, are, that they're given. And in so many ways, it's a greater ministry than men. So childbirth and women, God made women different. And the biggest difference is they can bear children. And so that's a picture when they embrace the bearing of children. That's a picture of them having embraced the order that God put into the world. Another application. It's important that we don't treat biblical law like U.S. law. U.S. law tries not to be case law. They try to command every situation. That's why they publish like 90,000 pages of new laws every month at the federal level, not to mention every state doing the same thing. Because they're not trying to say, learn the principles. They're trying to say, we'll give you details of every single thing. God's God's law is not like that. That's not how common law works, which our Constitution references common law. But we've rejected common law. Our laws are now all about that if the detail isn't there, it doesn't apply. But God gave laws so that we could think about things properly and come to proper conclusions about what to do in circumstances that are not explicitly covered. That's why God can give a fuller law in the Bible, or even even just through through Deuteronomy, he can give a fuller expression of the law than is in the, the million pages or whatever it is of federal law. Because he wrote it differently. And we need to make sure we treat God's law the way that it was written. He teaches us how to think think about things properly so we can take those cases and we can infer through those cases and rightly apply through those cases to deal with every situation in the world. So God can say, here's how to deal with, here's how to sacrifice a bullock as a sin offering. Here's the way to sacrifice a lamb as a sin offering. By the way, do a bird as a sin offering. 
and they were supposed to be able to understand it. Biblical law is to be meditated upon. It's to be thought about. It's to be make derivations from so that we can understand the right thing to do in every situation. It covers everything because it doesn't cover everything in detail. If you cover everything in detail, there is no end of the law. There is an end of the law because God didn't express it all in detail. He expressed it all in principle. Another application from the... From the beginning, Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. So why is uncleanness associated with birth? It's about fulfilling the first commandment of God to men, which I think, so why would it be about uncleanness? It was, you know, be fruitful and fill the earth. I think the more important picture that's being conveyed by this passage is what David said in Psalm 51, 3 through 5. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found when you, when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's this picture of total depravity. It's this picture that everyone is born in sin. Sin is passed on from one generation to another. So it is obedience to God to be fruitful and multiply, but that doesn't mean that your children are going to be clean, that they're going to be sinless. They're still born in sin. The picture of uncleanness because of childbirth is this picture that everyone's born in sin. Everyone's born in iniquity. They have to be cleansed. So David writes this so that that David can say this and express a spiritual reality. That according to the law of Moses, the physical picture is that, that every baby is brought forth in iniquity. Every baby is brought forth from uncleanness that the mother needs to be cleansed from, not because of her sin, but it's so that the spiritual picture is understood, that we all need a Savior. We all need to have somebody else's blood shed for us. We all need to be reconciled to the Father because all of us were brought forth in iniquity. And all of us... In sin, my mother conceived me. You know, as we were singing Psalm 73 this morning, it struck me another application here. Think of those 33 days after they have the seven days and the circumcision. And there's 33 days where the real thing that they can't do is to go into the holy place. As we sang Psalm 73 where it goes, I look at all these people and you know, they're fit and they're healthy and they're, they have everything going well. The woman who doesn't care about God, those 33 days don't matter at all. Those 66 days, they don't matter at all. Because it's only if you desire the presence of God does it matter that you can't touch holy things? Only if you desire to be in the presence of God does it matter that, that you can't go into the, the courtyard of the, of the tabernacle. I've seen many women in church. This is kind of an aside, but I've seen many women in church who, and I'm not saying here at all. I don't know of any case here, so I'm not, this is not talking about Reformation. 
But I've been in enough churches where women make excuses every week as to why they can't go to church. Oh, this child doesn't feel well. Oh, no, this child has a fever now. Oh, this child. And you know what? It's because they don't want to be in the sanctuary of the Lord. So it doesn't hurt them to be unclean. It doesn't hurt them to be separated. We're supposed to desire holy things. And this... And the judgment doesn't matter unless you desire holy things. So do you desire the holy things? God is saying the cleanness matters. If you don't desire holy things, you're not clean. And you don't want to be clean. Because if you don't desire the things of God, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to you that you're unclean. That's the picture. The judgment is on those who say, you know, and I've said this many times, where people say they're struggling with sin, and I say, really? Are you struggling with sin, or are you just fine with the sin? If you're struggling with the sin, that's a sign of salvation. If you're not struggling with the sin, it's a sign you're not saved, because you just don't care if you're clean or not. You don't care if you're unholy. You don't care if you can't enter the sanctuary of God. They were to do a lot of things to deal with sin. It was to be burdensome. The people who don't struggle with sin, they don't find any burden of sin. That's the unbeliever. The people who struggle with sin, that's the believer who is looking forward to the day when Christ returns. And there is no more struggle with sin. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Pray that my interpretation of it was correct. We wrestle with these things and continue on. There are many difficult things in Leviticus. I pray that you open our understanding so that we understand them rightly and we take the right applications from them. Lord, let us, let us have a zeal to deal with sin. Let us have a zeal to be killing sin lest it be killing us. For you have put all these things in, the, in your word so that we can understand how serious sin is and how vicious it is and how per, pervasive it is. Help us, Lord, to, to treat it that way and to have that zeal to be cleanness, to be clean, that zeal that we can approach the hill of the Lord. Lord, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.